Isaiah chapter 12. <clears throat> I'm only going to read the first uh, couple of verses. Actually, only one and a half. And then I'd like to ask Neil if he would uh, pray God's blessing upon the delivery of his truth. Isaiah chapter 12. And in that day thou shalt say, I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah. For though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. Let us pray. God is my salvation, Isaiah is singing. I will trust and will not be afraid. It appears that Isaiah may have had a psalm, we've been referring to this as the psalm of Isaiah, but it, it appears that he may have had uh, Psalm 62 in his mind or his memory when he penned his own psalm. Psalm 62 is a psalm of David. And in verses 5 through 8, the sweet psalmist of Israel has said, My soul, wait thou in silence for God only, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He only is my salvation, David has said. He is my high tower, I shall not be moved with God as my salvation and my glory. Again, God is my salvation, David cries out, and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. It's not hard to at least imagine that Isaiah was echoing this Psalm of David. Of course, the truths are something that he could have had in his own mind and heart apart from David's Psalm. Nonetheless, there is a unity here, is there not, between the Psalmist and the prophet. Verses three and four are quite contrary and I'm talking about 
verses 3 and 4 of the fifth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. They're speaking of the wicked, whereas the first two verses of this song within a song, or this song within a psalm, or this psalm within a song, whichever way we care to look at it. Isaiah says in chapter 5, let me sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he digged it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also hewed out a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. This could be considered a dirge when we leave these first couple of verses in the fifth chapter. Even as we read in the third and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he goes on, changing tone, changing the thought, changing the idea, changing the concept of this song. And it becomes less of a song of praise and thanksgiving and encouragement. It becomes more of a dirge, a song, or a poem, etc. A song for mourning, grieving, something of a lamentation, a funeral song. Yet with thoughts of God's faithful mercy to his promises, we see how this song of his vineyard changes its tone. Let me sing for my well-beloved, Isaiah begins, and it sounds like it's going to be an exciting song of praise, and it is if we confine it to those two verses. But listen to the remainder of it. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard than I have not, that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. And here comes the cause for a dirge or a, a lamentation. God says, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and I will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor hoed, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of Jehovah of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. We see this turning, this pivoting, this almost shocking spin around from the, from the praise and the fact that, that we're, we begin by singing of the vineyard. Uh, we learn that it belongs to God, the vineyard of God. We're singing about it and what God has planted and what God has determined to build here. And then all of a sudden it turns around and God registers his complaint against his own people, against 
Israel. For the vineyard of Jehovah of hosts is the house of Israel, and so on. The thing is all turned around. It's turned around, and what are we supposed to think of that? Is that not really, if we can continue this idea of a song, is that not the melody or the, or the tune or, or, or the, the language of the entirety of Scripture in a, in a large sense? Do we not have much cause in the Scriptures when we read them? Do we not have much cause for praising God, for rejoicing, for singing, for singing God's praise? at home alone with the people of God as we have just done in the assembly of his people. We have this call to worship, if you will, and yet then we find that there's something intermixed with this that's not, not something that we really care to sing about, and it's a more of a lamentation. These things intertwine throughout scriptures. We think of Mount, in Deuteronomy, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which represent cursing and blessing. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, there are cursings and blessings throughout the word of God. Did this not begin, in a sense, this, this double concept, if you will? Did it not begin almost immediately with Cain and Abel? Abel was, we find, blessed of God. We read of him in Hebrews 11. Cain was cursed and cast out from the presence of God. Let me sing for my well-beloved, Isaiah begins. But then God intersects, if you will, that praise and that blessing and so on that God had actually planted this vineyard he had set it in place. He had done the digging. He had, he had made a wine press in it. But then he begins what we may call in contrary to, contrariness to this blessing, cursing. God begins, he says, now I will tell. Well, he asked the question, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? What else could I have done? What did I fail to do, in other words? And he says just a few words later, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge. It shall be eaten up. I'll break down the wall. It shall be trodden down. I will lay it to waste. It shall not be pruned. There shall come up briars and thorns. I will command the clouds that there be no rain for the vineyard of Jehovah of hosts is the house of Israel, and so on. This cursing. And as I've suggested, this would probably be more properly called a lament, uh, or even perhaps in, in the terms of some of the Psalms of David, even perhaps an imprecatory Psalm. God himself calling upon his people, calling upon them, and asking this question, what? But I do, and he calls upon them, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. You judge. Here's what I'm telling you. I did all this. And here's what they did. They brought forth wild grapes. And it 
could be considered an imprecatory psalm, the invoking of evil upon anyone. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. We are still, I believe, witnessing the good news and the bad news, are we not? We see that again and again throughout the scriptures. Men being blessed with so much and yet abusing that blessing. Even as, in fact, Chuck just read about Belshazzar with all that he had. And he abuses it. He idolizes gold and silver and so on. He mocks the symbols of God's temple and abuses them. And the end of the message to him is basically your days are numbered. And they certainly were. And this, of course, is employed by Christ in the gospel narratives, this idea, this figure of a vineyard. Christ speaks about a vineyard in his narratives in the gospels. Are we not reminded by these denunciations that we read of and that we hear of? Are we not reminded of God's magnificent grace for the remnant? In other words, the good grapes, be there any. What are we to think about this? How are we to apply this to ourselves? Isaiah was applying it. God was applying it to the house of Israel. Do these things not apply to us? We're looking at this parable, this song of the Lord's vineyard within the body of these 12 chapters. And this is what has elicited this psalm of praise from Isaiah. And yet it's up and down, isn't it? It's to and fro. It's blowing in the wind. We don't know what to make of it. The behold that we read of the behold suggests that we are not singing. Not singing just to hear ourselves. We're singing not just for our own reception of these wonders, but for the reception of our sisters and brothers among us, as well as singing unto God his praise. Have you ever considered that when we sing, we're singing unto one another, as well as to God, to encourage one another Admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're admonishing, we're teaching one another. We're pronouncing blessing upon one another on many occasions, of course. But God's sovereign grace is the only reason that there are any good grapes at all. Bad grapes are the fruit of the, are the fault of the grapes. It's only God's wonderful grace, his sovereign grace, that there are any good grapes at all. God has done all these things as he speaks what he has done for his vineyard. He's done so many things in so many parts of the world. He's blessed over the centuries, over, over the millennia. He's blessed men with many things. He's blessed us in this land. No one could dispute that. 
He has blessed this country. He's blessed many parts, but none so much as he has blessed this land. Yet the very blessings we've made to be cursings because of our wickedness, because of our abuse of the things that he has given us. There's no privilege or blessing that we cannot, that we have not abused. Because that innate wickedness, sinfulness in us, what more could we ask for? What more could we ask for that he hasn't given us? I know you hear people complaining all the time. And that even makes it more sad, does it not? People complaining in this land when they have so much given them. And even so many. If there's a God, why doesn't, you know, bringing God and blaming him, bringing him into their complaints. What more could we ask for? And yet, we see the response of mankind. We see wild grapes all around. We see wild grapes in our own hearts. We see wild grapes on every street corner. We see wild grapes in, in, in every news item. We see wild grapes with people complaining and beating one another and murdering one another. Wild grapes. Men stand without excuse. God has done not all that he could, but all that he should have to do for a good response. Why is it only brought forth wild grapes? Where are the good grapes? In Hosea 4.17, we read these words. Ephraim is joined to idols. Could, that, could we not say America is joined to idols? Could we not say the world is joined to idols? Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Let him alone. I've done all that I'm going to do. I've done all that I need, should have to do. I planted a vineyard in a fruitful hill. I digged it. I gathered out the stones. I planted it with the choicest vine, a tower, a wine press, everything. I've done everything, and yet man shakes his fist at me. Man refuses to believe I exist. Man mocks my son. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. In Matthew 15, 14, our Lord Jesus Christ himself Speaking of these Jewish leaders, says, let them alone. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both shall fall into a pit. It's hard not to imagine that many, many have been touched by that pronouncement, let them alone. And they are guiding others into the pit. They have been let alone, perhaps. Those frightening words, let them alone. In Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah, don't pray for them anymore. Don't pray for them anymore. Let them alone. 
Pray not thou for this people, he tells them in a few places in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Oh, that we would never hear that ourselves, that we would never be commanded not to pray. What would we do then? At the beginning of a poetic work in which God is praised, the verb to sing, let me sing in Isaiah 5 for my well-beloved. At the beginning of a poetic work, which many feel that this is, and it appears so, God is, in which God is praised, the verb to sing is often used in its beginning. Exodus 15, 1, you remember after the deliverance through the Red Sea and from the host of Pharaoh, we read, then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto Jehovah and spake, saying, I will sing unto Jehovah, for he hath, and go on and on with the deliverance that he has provided them by his grace and because of his love for them. And Deborah and Barak in Judges 5.3, what they often is called the song of Deborah, Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princes, I, even I, will sing unto Jehovah. I will sing praise to Jehovah, the God of Israel. Is that, is that what this land is doing? Is that what this land is doing, giving thanks to God, giving praise to God? Someone that they don't even know. Someone that they won't even name. Somebody up there likes me, somebody said. But he didn't give thanks. There's blessings and there's cursings. We read in, in Psalm 80 that what we could, I suppose, call that Psalm of the Vineyard. Psalm 80, the Psalm of Asaph. In a few of the verses there, 8 through 11, Asaph says, Thou broughtest a vine out of Egypt. Thou didst drive out the nations and plantest it. Thou preparedst room before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the cedars of God. It sent out its branches unto the sea, and its shoots unto the river. It's, it's very easy to imagine this being spoken of, our country. It took deep root. The mountains were covered with the shadow of it. The boughs were like cedars of God. It sent out its branches unto the sea, unto the Pacific, unto the Atlantic. And what has been the result? What has been our thanksgiving? What has been our praise? This country. What has been our response to the mercies of God? In Isaiah 27, this is what the response should be at verse 2 of 27. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing ye unto it. I, Jehovah, am its keeper. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Wrath is not in me. Would that the briars and thorns were against me in battle. I would march upon them. I would burn them together, else let them take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me. Yea, let him make peace with me. 
In days to come shall Jacob take root, Israel shall blossom and bud, and they shall fill the face of the world with fruit. God is so patient, so long-suffering, so merciful. In the face of rejection, in the face of cursing his name, he continues to provide blessings for a people that don't bless him. Blessings and cursings, on and on. Christ's parable in the Gospels, in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, we can look at, at Luke's, the language of Luke at chapter 20. And at verse 9, he began to speak unto the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard and so on. He sent out unto the husbandman a servant that they should bring him the fruit of the vineyard. You know that parable. You've heard it before. You've probably read it a number of times. The husband or the, the people that he had let the vineyard out to, they eventually killed his own son when he sent him unto them. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him after he told that parable. Why? Because they feared the people. Why? Because they perceived that he spake the parable against them. He knew that he was speaking a parable against them. He knew that it was they and their fathers that he had let this vineyard out to. And that when he sent his servants to receive the fruits thereof and even eventually his own son, they killed them. Such, such remarkable wickedness. They perceived that he spake this parable against them. Cursing and blessing. Ebal and Gerizim, backward and forward. God is so gracious and God is so long-suffering. He waits upon people. He does them good while they do him evil. We see how that Israel was eventually, and Judah in particular here, in Isaiah's prophecy, we see how that they were eventually cast out. Isaiah spoke the parable of them. They were led captive to Babylon. They were exiled. We see how that Babylonians carried away apostate Israel according to the prophecy. We can only wonder. We read also Christ's own prophecy in Luke 19 when he was weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he, and he prophesied and stated that there shall not be one stone left upon another. Jerusalem shall be destroyed. And it was. Judah was carried away. Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. When is the judgment going to be meted out to this country? Do we think that we're going to escape? Do we think that this land is something special that's going to escape the judgment of God? When is judgment going to be meted out to this country? When is it going to be meted out to the apostate church in America. Buildings, peoples gathered together, calling themselves churches, claiming that they're 
preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they're preaching the gospel of men. Even Pope Francis, just a couple of days ago, charged his Catholics with living double lives. Worse than atheists. Did you ever think to hear something like that from a Roman Catholic Pope about his own people? How bad has it become in this country when that takes place? All hypocrites live double lives. That's the definition of hypocrisy. But for this man heading this large, numerically large church to say that, to admit that about his own, I find remarkable. You remember how that we're told in the scriptures, and Abraham, I believe, was told that his people would come in back into that land promised to him when the iniquity of the Amorites was full. And it happened when the iniquity of the Amorites was full. When is the iniquity of the Americans going to be full? Light and darkness, one is written. Salvation and judgment go together and form the concept, the day of the Lord. Hence Isaiah can speak of judgment and punishment, and in the next breath, as it were, of salvation also. Do you see that? Ebal, cursing, garrison, blessing. He can speak of judgment and in the next breath of salvation. All of these phrases that he uses refer to the same period, the time when both judgment and salvation will come to the earth. God will manifest himself as judge and yet as savior, will he not? When thy men shall fall by the sword and thy mighty in the war, and almost in the same breath we read, yet in that day shall the branch of Jehovah be beautiful. It's hard to wrap your arms around this contrast. That same writer said, here is a pithy philosophy of the history of Israel. Israel was chosen and blessed of God through his wondrous grace. But despite God's blessing, she was worthless and fit only to be cast out. As at last when the exile came, she was finally cast out. How do we differ? How do we differ from this? Were, were not we chosen and blessed of God in this land through his wondrous grace? Are we not worthless, fit to be cast out? The visible church in this land? Those having, having forsaken the word of God? Denying that it is the word of God? Those embracing idols? I'm not even talking about Rome and other sacramental churches embracing their idols. I'm talking about so many professing churches idolizing themselves. Isaiah has concluded his role of singer here. And with the second verse, he's brought his story to an end. The speaker, the speaker in this chapter 5 is now seen to be the owner of the vineyard. And he proceeds to set the case before the hearers, before his hearers for judgment, and indeed commands them to pass judgment upon it. 
Judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. Is there any good reason that we can imagine that judgment shouldn't be passed upon this land, upon the churches in this land, upon us, perhaps? I will tell you, he says, what I will do. I will tell you what I will do. How wonderful it is to know that God is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and full of compassion. And that there is a remnant. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. There are some good grapes, but it's not the fault of those grapes that they're good either any more than it's the fault of the bad grapes or the wild grapes that they're bad and wild. Isaiah says that there will be a captivity, there will be an exile, but the remnant shall return. If the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that shall be saved. There will be a remnant saved. Christ says that there shall not be one stone left upon another, but the remnant shall flee to the mountains, whatever that means. The remnant shall be saved. Paul has said that there will be a rapture. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we that are alive, that are left, shall together with them be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians 16 and 17 of the first chapter. But this is no secret rapture. This is not the secret rapture that many embrace. In their escapism. They have a fire escape gospel and they have an escapist eschatology that they're just going to be raptured out of any problems. But Paul does speak in Thessalonians of this true rapture. It's no secret rapture. Does it strike you as secret? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. Does that sound secret? That will be an exceptionally loud secret. This revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus, who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There shall be no secret about it, whatever. But Paul continues in that epistle. He says this takes place when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. Again, it's cursing and blessing. It's casting out and bringing in. When he shall be glorified in his saints, when he shall be glorified with the remnant, he shall then see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And to be marveled, Paul goes on, in all them that believed in that day. The remnant according to the election of grace. These are they. These are the ones who shall sing with Isaiah and with David forever and ever. God is my salvation. 
I will trust and not be afraid. The remnant is the elect. Yea, though judgment come upon the wicked, and those refusing to believe the gospel, yet many will say in that day with Isaiah, God is my salvation. Isaiah said in the first chapter, except Jehovah of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom. We should have been like unto Gomorrah. That is our desert in ourselves. But except Jehovah had left a remnant, but he did leave a remnant. And by God's grace, if we have said and continue to say, God is my salvation, we are numbered among that remnants. And we receive the blessing of Gerizim, not the cursing of Ebal. Praise God for his electing grace. Praise God that there is a remnant. Praise God that he is our salvation. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank thee that thou hast taught us, O Lord our God, that thou art our salvation. Sometimes we confess, we cry out. We cry out, O Lord God, why me, Lord, what have I ever done to deserve even one? And Father, thy word comes resounding back to us, nothing. You have done nothing, but I have done it all. Oh, Lord our God, we thank thee for thy so great salvation through the blood of thy Son, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction from Psalm 3 in the 8th verse? Salvation belongeth unto Jehovah. Thy blessing be upon thy people. Selah.